Ready to keep you company wherever you are. Card Blanche, the podcast, brings you immersive, hard-hitting stories anytime, anywhere, every week. It's another episode of The Whole Week Wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche, coming up in today's show. What the Wagner Group's Russian rebellion means for Africa. The latest unemployment figures are out and things are not looking good. The thing is, I think our problem has become so deep that it's not just up to the government. I think it's up to the whole country to think, what am I doing to help people get work? And everyone, in a way, can do something. And not one, but two positive stories to get you ready for the week ahead. There's no time to waste, so let's get into our first story. It's a paramilitary organization that's been on our radar for quite some time. But on 23 June, many people around the world became aware of the Wagner Group, officially known as PMC Wagner, for the very first time. The now infamous Army for Hire has been kicked out of Russia, but their boots remain firmly on the ground in various African countries. Welcome to another jam-packed episode of The Whole Week Wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche. With me today to wrap our heads around the biggest headlines is Daily Maverick Managing Editor Janet Hurd. Janet, how are you doing this week? Good, thanks, Lizanne. So let's talk about the Wagner Group. Uh, we're starting things off quite heavy today. Um, referred to um, by many as Russia's private army, the mercenary group abruptly rebelled against the Russian government a short while back for a lengthy period of time of, well, just one whole day. Let's be honest, it was such an anticlimax for everyone. The Wagner leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, basically felt his band of paid soldiers were being booted out by the Russian military, and he didn't like that. But what I want Want us to focus on today is that the Wagner Group has been present on the African continent for quite some time, almost a, a decade, and it's it certainly made its presence known. So, what are your thoughts on on Wagner within the African context? It was a very dramatic experience to watch that unfold for such, as you said, a very brief time, and then suddenly a, a retreat. But what it did do for I think people living in Africa was to everyone suddenly googling Wagner. To to find out what is this military group, which actually has had a very big presence in parts of Africa for about a decade. But I think it's kind of passed over a lot of people who, you know, it's just not close enough or don't really understand it. So there hasn't been a, a, maybe a sufficient focus on this Wagner operations, although there have been quite a lot of reports on it through through the years. It's quite interesting because uh, Daily Maverick has, has written quite extensively on Wagner. And I'll be the first to admit that in the past, I haven't really taken notice and I, I suspect that a lot of people have been in the same position, suddenly really, really wanting to find out more. And of course, um, Wagner has operated in, in various countries in Africa, particularly in, in the CAR country. And in CAR, they have been around since, I think, 2018, propping up the government there. And, and it's a big security apparatus that they run there. As it's been reported, they've been using it to eliminate opponents of the president or anyone who has tried to stop Wagner itself, seizing gold mines and other loot. So they, they operate by getting cuts in mining concessions and things like that. It's very shady, obviously. It's, it is known as Putin's private army. They've played a role in Mali, in Burkina.
Burkina Faso, in Sudan, they exert considerable influence in Africa. So I suppose the question now is also how will this impact, if anything, on this rebellion? How will it impact on their hold in various countries? So I think we're all watching with concern, with interest, but also wondering how this is going to play out in Africa because it is so influential. It had a role in Mozambique as well. And we really need to sort of take notice. We had a century report this week that coincided, you know, a few days after the 24-hour rebellion, where they actually said how Wagner had been propping up undemocratic leaders in Africa. So there's a lot at stake. I think the one interesting thing is now we know Putin actually revealed when the rebellion took place, he actually revealed that they were employed by Russia. So they've actually now revealed the amount of money he's paying. I think there was a mention of $1 billion yeah. um, over a year period since the invasion of Ukraine. So yeah, it's, it's playing out and, and, and it has a huge significance for Africa. It's just quite staggering to see the, the spread of Wagner within and across Africa. And I don't think that should Russia now cut the funding, that that would necessarily be a big problem for them. I mean, they have hefty gold, diamond and other mineral resources that they can rely on. There's a definite security vacuum, if you want to call it that, in Africa. So I'm very interested to see what's going to happen, whether the African leaders will kind of absorb them into their systems or whether the Wagner group is just going to kind of carry on the way they've always carried on. But I'm also wondering, is this maybe a time for the West to kind of jump in and take advantage of the uncertainty right now? I think they will, definitely because of the instability that it's created, because now I suppose it was always Putin's army, and now it is ostensibly not. <laughs> but I think they think it's still playing out. Prigozhin has been banished to Belarus um, and has agreed to dissolve Wagner, they say, that's according to some reports, but it's, it's clear that won't happen. And I think it will create more instability, which can lead to even more reckless things happening. But I think it's just too early to say, and I don't know how the West, I don't think they have responded in Africa. There's always a, obviously a neglect of Africa's interests. It's always actually, I suppose, about the money, following the money on the ownership and how they actually have control and such influence in these African countries. And that's quite mm. close to us, obviously, with Mozambique. This very violent mercenary group, they're difficult to control and inevitably they become hitmen for the highest bidder. So it can really go so many different directions in the coming weeks, months and years. So I don't feel very optimistic about either kind of outcome involving Wagner, really. Yes, and I suppose the question is, will there be a termination between Putin's Russia and, and Wagner? And I don't think that that's clear. Job seekers are having a hard time as unemployment figures continue moving in the wrong direction. With less than 10 million South Africans currently holding a stable job, a solution must be found. So our next story is a bit more close to home. Last week, Stats SA released its first quarter employment stats and it painted a very bleak picture. For the period January to March this year, a total of 179,000 people were added to the country's unemployed ranks, meaning a total of 7.9 million South Africans are currently without jobs. And, and that's a staggering number of individuals unable to provide for their families. I mean, that's been one of the most uh, startling stories of last week and it combined with the sort of consumer confidence stats also at their lowest level, second lowest level since 94, whereas the previous lowest level was during the height of COVID. So it combines together with a very sad picture and it really is quite hard to get a handle on, on the impact of these 
sort of gloomy stats because it's, a, it's, it's actually about people, obviously. And uh, showing the current economic climate where consumer confidence is down and, you know, so many jobs shed in one quarter. So the unemployment rate is, is really a ticking time bomb. It's such a cliche, but really it's quite devastating. And it, it struck home for me, I was driving along the road in Sun Valley after Maspumalele into Sun Valley. That road going by Long Beach Mall was just lined with people, you know, at about nine in the morning. And it was just packed with people just standing on the side of the road looking for work. There's always been people there, but there just seem to be so many more. So we have a real crisis here. There's obviously a need for a basic income grant. I, I think it would be insane to you know not see the urgency of, of a national effort here to just bail out people in a temporary measure and then also help them look for work it needs to be combined but we cannot sit by now and see this escalation of joblessness we don't often praise government on this show but i think we need to acknowledge that some government interventions have actually provided a bit of a silver lining here as well because when you read the report from stats sa despite 21,000 people having lost their jobs about 46,000 jobs within the government sector were created, primarily among the youth through various youth employment programs. So I think in a way, government is doing something right, but it's clearly not enough. I think that's very real. And I, I do think there are some programs that do have an impact and we need to look at those programs and actually just expand on them. There's a lot of talk about easing joblessness. And I think the government, you know, in terms of the, the strategy, they, they say it's priorities and all the key speeches. But the thing is, I think our problem has become so deep that it's not just up to the government. I think it's up to the whole country to think, what am I doing to help people get work? And everyone, in a way, can do something. I was listening to Tony Ehrenreich, now the parliamentary deputy coordinator for Kasatu, and I heard him saying, you know, the problem is that we can't see joblessness in isolation. We need to see it as part of everything, and mm-hmm. including corruption. It's a failure of government leaders to deal with the issues. So we need to actually build on those. And it's also the failure, I think, of everyone in the country to see it in isolation. We should see it as all part of the same thing. And how do we fix the country? We need to fix the country by providing jobs. It's insane to think that we have less than 10 million of the population being mm. employed. Figure that came out. Another thing that struck me with Tony Ehrenreich, where he said we don't need the rich to get richer. We, we've got that. And I think that's also where the, the conversation needs to go. How do we create jobs for people who really need it? We can't drop the focus on actually, obviously, more skilled jobs and in the AI and all sorts of areas, but you also need to look at the bulk of semi-skilled labor to try and build people's skills in call centers. That's what's happening in other, in high tech. We can, we can do it, but we need to look at ways of doing that. I think the way the government has try to join with business in the venture from a few weeks ago and a big high announcement with um, CEOs and helping to sort of roll up their sleeves together. One of the issues there will also be job creation. So we have to, as you said, look for the silver lining. That's another, there is one. They are trying. And I think that we also must realize we're not alone, that joblessness is a problem around the world. I saw a report Mm. about China struggling. We do need to see that we are not alone in this battle, but it's how we actually navigate it. Good news is hard to come by, so when we do come across it, we have to share. Once again, our constitution comes to the rescue as 178,000 Zimbabwean exemption permit holders breathe a sigh of relief. And a kidnapping story with a happy ending. You don't want to miss this one. 
onto our green shoots and it's always lovely ending things on a more positive note. It's a temporary positive note if you want to look at it that way. The High Court recently ruled that the Department of Home Affairs decision to abruptly withdraw the Zimbabwean exemption permits or ZEPs was unconstitutional and the ruling essentially gives 178,000 ZEP holders a temporary year-long lifeline to remain in the country while government follows the necessary processes to withdraw and ultimately terminate the ZEP program. For those who perhaps missed it or haven't really been following the, the ZEP case, why is this such an important case and why is it being celebrated so widely? This has definitely been one of the a really significant, powerful, positive development. It's an intervention that was taken by a civic society led by the um, Helen Sussman Foundation when Home Affairs decided that they were going to terminate these special exemption permits to Zimbabweans. People who were suddenly going to be suddenly overnight, well not overnight, after a few months, being suddenly rendered undocumented. So you can imagine the impact, the fear that they've been living under. It was such a summary executive decision. <laughs> it was taken yeah. so abruptly. So thanks to the intervention of civic society, they said, no, put the brakes on it. So these communities have been living in limbo for at least two years, wondering when what's going to happen with the status of these permits. The most basic process was not followed. They didn't have public participation, which is a very cornerstone of South Africa's uh, constitution. So the Home Affairs was was rebuked by the court in a very clear judgment, which says there's a grace period now of a year. So these permits have now been extended and there needs to be a proper public participation process into this decision and seeing the implication of this decision. It's a big victory because of the nature of the ruling, which was very hard hitting against Home Affairs. And it's not the first ruling against Home Affairs. The other one was the victory by the Scalabrini Centre over the sections of the Refugees Act, which has been ruled unconstitutional. So the green shoot here is that really we have amazing civic society leadership and activism to actually intervene and actually say, no, this is not okay. Let's do this properly. I never give up hope in this country because I feel like we've got so much positive attitude around us, but we've just got to keep making those noises. And I mean, we've kind of mentioned this a few times in, in various episodes, just kind of celebrating the strength of our constitution because time and again, it really comes to our rescue every single time. We need to also emphasize that the people we're talking about here, the ZEP permit holders, are completely legal in the country. They've been contributing to the country by working here, creating jobs, forming their own businesses. So it's so important that we do take care of these people and we treat them with with the fairness that they deserve. Absolutely, and I think that's the, the overriding message. They must have felt very unwelcome for all this time, and I'm sure it must be at least a bit of a relief for them, for people to see that actually there are people who care, that this country does care about mm. our people. They cross the border from us in a country that is in a terrible state, and they provide and contribute so much to South Africa. So mm. it's been heartening to see, and I hope that there can be some resolution in the process. So I also want us to quickly look at a story that came through fairly late last week and it's about a baby that was kidnapped seven months ago at a mall in Kabecha and that baby's been found and it's all thanks to an alert and committed social worker, uh, Portia Marinana. So a massive shout out to her and also to the many dedicated social workers out there trying to do good despite the many challenges within the system. I mean, that is such a great story. When I saw that headline, I, I almost couldn't believe it. 
you know, really that hats off to the staff at the Dora and Ginza Hospital. And, and just so heartwarming to see such intervention, alertness. You know, the story starts about how the whole investigation began on the afternoon of Friday, 23 June. An elderly couple walked into the office of Portia Maranana, a social worker in the Department of Pediatrics. And they wanted help with a proof of birth document for their seven-month-old grandson. And that's how the story began, because then she started seeing this is not what it seems to be. And she spotted all these flaws in the process. And she was just very alert. And thanks to her doggedness, she sort of started unraveling the story and eventually to solve a seven-month-old case. And that's just a heartwarming story. You know, there are people like that everywhere in this country. Often they don't make the news. And it's just so wonderful that that story made it. And I think everyone, it's such a talking point for everyone. And Mm -hmm. it's so great for the parents to get their kid back. Gosh, what a green shoot, right? If we wanted a green shoot, there's our green shoot. Absolutely. And on that happy note, Janet, it's been so lovely chatting to you. And thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thanks, Lizanne. And that's a wrap. In case you missed any of our previous chats with Daily Maverick, you can find them all on Carte Blanche, the podcast, available on Spotify and all major podcasting platforms.